After hearing Rukmini's statement, Lord Krishna was very much pleased. He immediately shook hands with the Brahmana and said, My dear Brahmana, I'm very glad to hear that Rukmini is eager, eager to marry me, since I am also eager to get her hand. My mind is always absorbed in thoughts of the daughter of Bhishmaka, and sometimes I cannot sleep at night because I am thinking of her. I can understand that the marriage of Rukmini and Sh with Shishupal has been arranged by her elder brother in a spirit of animosity toward me. So I am determined to give a good lesson to all these princes, just as one extracts and uses fire after manipulating ordinary wood, after dealing with these demoniac princes, I shall forth Rukmini like fire from their midst. Krishna, upon being informed of the specific date of Rukmini, to the kingdom of Darba, after hearing the driver has four special horses. The descriptions of these horses are mentioned in the Padma Purana. The first one, Shaibya, was greenish. The second, Sugriva, was grayish like ice. The third, Megapushpa, was the color of a new cloud. And the last, Balahaka, was of ashen color. When the horses were and the chariot was ready to go, Krishna up and father was known as Damugosh due to his superior ability to cut down unregulated citizens. Dhamma means coming down and Gosha means famous. So he was famous for controlling the citizens. Damugosha thought that if Krishna came to disturb the marriage ceremony, he would certainly cut him down with his military power. Therefore, after performing the various auspicious ceremonies, Damugosha gathered his military divisions. He took many elephants garlanded with golden necklaces and many similarly decorated chariots and horses. It appeared that Damagosha, along with his son and other companions, was going to Kundina, not exactly to get Shishupal married, but, to, but mainly to fight. When King Bhishmaka learned that Damagosha and his party were arriving, he left the city to receive them. Outside the city gate, were many gardens where guests were welcome to stay. In the Vedic system of marriage, the bride's father receives the large party of the bridegroom and accommodates them in a suitable place for two or three days until the marriage ceremony is performed. The party led by Damagosha contained thousands of men, among whom the prominent kings and personalities were Jarasandha, Dantavakra, Viduratha, and Poundraka. It was an open secret that Rukmini was meant to be married to Krishna, but that her elder brother Rukmi had arranged her marriage to Shishupal. There was also some whispering about a rumor that Rukmini had sent a message, messenger to Krishna. Therefore, the soldiers suspected that Krishna might cause a disturbance by attempting to kidnap Rukmini. Even though they were not without fear, they were all prepared to give Krishna a good fight to prevent the girl from being taken away. Shri Balaram received the news that Krishna had left for Kundina, accompanied only by a brahmana, and that Shishupal was there with a large number of soldiers. 
Balaram suspected that they would attack Krishna, and thus, out of great affection for his brother, he took strong military divisions of chariots, infantry, horses, and elephants, and went to the precincts of Kundina. Meanwhile, inside the palace, Rukmini was expecting Krishna to arrive. But when neither neither he nor the Brahmana who took her message appeared, she was full of anxiety and began to think how unfortunate she was. There is only one night between today and my marriage day, and still neither the Brahmana nor Shamasundar has returned. I cannot ascertain any reason for this. Having little hope, she thought that perhaps Krishna found reason to become dissatisfied and had rejected her fair proposal. As a result, the Brahmana might have become disappointed and not come back. Although she was thinking of various causes for the delay, she expected them both at any moment. Rukmini further thought that demigods such as Lord Brahma, Lord Shiva, and Goddess Durga might have been displeased It is generally said that the demigods become angry when not properly worshipped. For instance, when Indra found that the inhabitants of Vrindavan were not worshipping him, Krishna having stopped the Indra Yajna, he became angry and wanted to chastise them. Thus Rukmini thought that since she did not worship Lord Shiva or Lord Brahma very much, they might have become angry and tried to frustrate her plan. Similarly, she thought that Goddess Durga, the wife of Lord Shiva, might have taken the side of her husband. Lord Shiva is known as Rudra, and his wife is known as Rudrani. Rudrani and Rudra refer to those who are accustomed to putting others in distress to cry forever. Rukmini was thinking of Goddess Durga as Girija, the daughter of the Himalaya mountains. The Himalaya mountains are very cold and hard, and she thought of Goddess Durga as light-hearted, as hard-hearted and cold. In her anxiety to see Krishna, Rukmini, who was after all still a child, thought this way about the different demigods. The gopis worshipped Goddess Katyayani to get Krishna as their husband. Similarly, Rukmini was thinking of the various types of demigods, not for material benefit, but in respect to Krishna. Praying to the demigods to achieve the favor of Krishna is not irregular, and Rukmini was fully absorbed in thoughts of Krishna. Even though she pacified herself by thinking that the time for Govinda to arrive had not not yet expired, Rukmini felt that she was hoping against hope. Not expressing her mind to anyone, she simply shed tears, unobserved by others. And when her tears became more forceful, she closed her eyes in helplessness. While Rukmini was in such deep thought, auspicious symptoms appeared in different parts of her body. Trembling began to occur in her left eyelid, arm, and thigh. When trembling occurs in these parts of the body, it is an auspicious sign 
indicating that something lucrative can be expected. Just then Rukmini, full of anxiety, saw the Brahmana messenger. Krishna, being the super soul of all living beings, could understand Rukmini's anxiety. Therefore he sent the Brahmana inside the palace to let her know that he had arrived. When Rukmini saw the Brahmana, she could understand the auspicious trembling of her body and immediately became elated. She smiled and inquired whether Krishna had already come. The Brahmana replied that the son of the Yadu dynasty, Sri Krishna, had arrived. He further encouraged her by saying that Krishna had promised to carry her away without fail. Rukmini was so elated by the Brahmana's message, message that she wanted to give him in charity everything she possessed. <clears throat> However, finding nothing suitable for presentation, she simply offered him her respectful obeisances. The obeisances are a big thing, huh? <clears throat> the significance of offering respectful obeisances to a superior is that the one offering obeisances is obliged to the respected person. In other words, Rukmini implied that she would remain ever grateful to the Brahmana. Anyone who gets the favor of the goddess of fortune, as, this, as did this Brahmana, is without doubt, a doubt, without a doubt, always happy in material opulence. When King Bhishmaka heard that Krishna and Balaram had come, he invited them to see the marriage ceremony of his daughter. Immediately he arranged to receive them, along with their soldiers, in a suitable garden house. As was the Vedic custom, the king offered Krishna and Balaram honey and fresh-washed garments. He was hospitable, not, not only to Krishna and Balaram and the kings, and kings such as Jarasandha, but also to many other kings and princes, according to their personal strength, age, and material possessions. Out of curiosity and eagerness, the people of Kundina assembled before Krishna and Balaram to drink the nectar of their beauty. With tearful eyes, they offered Krishna and Balaram their silent respects. They were very much pleased, considering Lord Krishna the suitable match for Rukmini. They were so eager to unite Krishna and Rukmini that they prayed to this personality of Godhead, Our dear Lord, if we have performed any pious activities with which you are satisfied, kindly be merciful upon us and accept the hand of Rukmini. It appears that Rukmini was a very popular princess and all the citizens, out of intense love for her, prayed for her best fortune. In the meantime, Rukmini, being very nicely dressed and protected by bodyguards, came out of the palace to visit the temple of Ambika, goddess Durga. Deity worship in the temple has been in, in existence since the beginning of Vedic culture. There is a group of men described in the Bhagavad Gita as Veda, Vada, Rata. Believe only in the Vedic ritualistic ceremonies, but not in temple worship. Such foolish people may here take note 
that although this marriage of Krishna and Rukmini took place more than 5,000 years ago, there were arrangements for temple worship. In the Bhagavad Gita, the Lord says, Yanti Deva Vrta Devan, the worshippers of the demigods attain the abodes of the demigods. There were many people who worshipped the demigods and many who directly worshipped the Supreme Personality of Godhead. The system of demigod worship was directed mainly to Lord Brahma, Lord Shiva, Lord Ganesh, the Sun God, and Goddess Durga. Lord Shiva and Goddess, Goddess Durga were worshipped even by the royal families. Other minor demigods were worshipped by silly, lower-class people. As far as the Brahmanas and Vaishnavas are concerned, they simply worship Lord Vishnu, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. In the Bhagavad Gita, the worship of demigods is condemned, but there it is clearly stated that less intelligent men worship the demigods for material benefit. On the other hand, even though Rukmini was the goddess of fortune, she went to the temple of goddess Durga because the family deity was worshipped there. In Srimad Bhagavatam it is stated that as Rukmini proceeded toward the temple of goddess Durga, within her heart she always thought of the lotus feet of Krishna. Therefore, when Rukmini went to the temple, it was not with the intention of an ordinary person who goes to beg for material benefits. Her only goal was Krishna. As Rukmini proceeded toward the temple, she was silent and grave. Her mother and her girlfriends were by her side, and the wife of a Brahmana was in the center. Surrounding her were royal bodyguards. This custom of a would-be bride's going to the temple of a demigod is still practiced in India. As the procession continued, various musical sounds were heard. Conch shells, drums, such as panavas, and bugles of different sizes, such as turiyas and beris, combined to make a sound which was not only auspicious, but very sweet to hear. Thousands of wives of respectable brahmanas were present, all dressed very nicely with suitable ornaments. They presented Rukmini with flower garlands, sandalwood pulp, and a variety of colorful garments to assist her in worshipping Lord Shiva, Goddess Durga. Some of these ladies were very old and knew perfectly well how to chant prayers to Goddess Durga and Lord Shiva. So followed by Rukmini and others, they led these prayers before the deity. Rukmini offered her prayers to the deity by saying, My dear Goddess Durga, I offer my respectful obeisances unto you, as well as to your children. Goddess Durga has four famous children, two daughters, the goddess of fortune, Lakshmi, and the goddess of learning, Saraswati, and two sons, Lord Ganesh and Lord Kartikeya. They are all considered demigods and goddesses. Since goddess Durga is always worshipped with her famous children, Rukmini specifically offered her respectful obeisances to the deity in that way. However, her prayers were special. Ordinary people pray to goddess Durga for material wealth, fame, profit, strength, and so on. Rukmini, however, desired to have Krishna for her husband and therefore prayed that the deity be pleased with her and bless her with that benediction. Since she desired only Krishna, her worship of the demigods is not condemned.
While Rukmini was praying, she presented a variety of items before the deity, chief of which were water, different kinds of flames, incense, garments, garlands, and various foods prepared with ghee, such as puris and kachoris. She also offered fruits, sugarcane, betel nuts, and spices. With great devotion, Rukmini offered them to the deity according to the regulator principles directed by the old Brahmana ladies. After this ritualistic ceremony, the ladies offered the remnants of the food to Rukmini as prasadam, which she accepted with great respect. Then Rukmini offered her obeisances to the ladies and to Goddess Durga. After the business of deity worship was finished, Rukmini caught hold of the hand of one of her girlfriends in her own hand, which was decorated with a jeweled ring, and left the temple in the company of the others. All the princes and visitors who came to Kundina for the marriage had assembled outside the temple to see Rukmini. The princes were especially eager to see her because they all actually thought they would have Rukmini as their wife. Struck with wonder upon seeing Rukmini, they thought she was especially manufactured by the Creator to bewilder all the great chivalrous princes. Her body was well constructed, the middle portion being thin. Her high hips were adorned with a jeweled locket. She had pink lips, and the beauty of her face was enhanced by her slightly scattered hair and by different kinds of earrings. The bodily luster and beauty of Rukmini appeared as if painted by an artist perfectly presenting beauty following the descriptions of great poets. Rukmini's breasts are described as being somewhat high, indicating that she was just a youth, not more than 13 or 14 years old. Her beauty was specifically intended to attract the attention of Krishna. Although the princess gazed upon her beautiful features, she was not at all proud. Her eyes moved restlessly, and when she smiled very simply, like an innocent girl, her teeth appeared just like jasmine buds. Expecting Krishna to take her away at any moment, she proceeded slowly toward her home. Her legs moved just like a full-grown swan, and her ankle bells tinkled mildly. The Shivalras princes assembled there were so overwhelmed by Rukmini's beauty that they became almost unconscious and fell from their horses and elephants. Full of lust, they hopelessly desired Rukmini's hand, comparing their own beauty to hers. Srimati Rukmini, however, was not interested in any of them. In her heart, she was simply expecting Krishna to come and carry her away. As she was adjusting the ornaments on a finger of her left hand, she happened to look upon the princes and suddenly saw that Krishna was present amongst them. Although Rukmini had never before seen Krishna, she was always thinking of him. Thus, she had no difficulty recognizing him amongst the princely order. Krishna, unconcerned with the other princes, immediately took the opportunity. Krishna, unconcerned with the other princes, immediately took the opportunity to place Rukmini on his chariot, marked by a flag bearing an image of Garuda. He then proceeded slowly, without fear, taking Rukmini away exactly as a lion takes a deer from the midst of jackals. Meanwhile, Balaram appeared on the scene with the soldiers of the Yana dynasty. Jarasandha, who had many times experienced defeat by Krishna, roared, How is this? 
Krishna is taking Rukmini away from us without opposition. What is the use of us being chivalrous fighters with arrows? My dear princes, just look. We are losing our reputation. He is just like a jackal taking booty from a lion. Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 53rd chapter of Krishna. Krishna kidnaps Rukmini. Bravo. Chapter 54. Krishna defeats all the princes and takes Rukmini home to Dwarka. Jarasandha and all the other princes were very angry at Krishna for having kidnapped Rukmini. Struck by Rukmini's beauty, they had fallen from the backs of their horses and elephants. But now they began to stand up and properly arm themselves. Picking up their bows and arrows, they began to chase Krishna on their chariots, horses, and elephants. To check their progress, the soldiers of the Yadu dynasty turned and faced them. Thus, terrible fighting began between the two belligerent groups. The princes opposing Krishna, who were led by Jarasandha and were all expert in fighting, shot their arrows at the Yadu soldiers just as a cloud splashes the face of a mountain with torrents of rain. Gathered on the face of a mountain, a cloud does not move very much, and therefore the force of rain is much more severe on a mountain than anywhere else. The opposing princes were determined to defeat Krishna and recapture Rukmini from his cousin. They fought with him as severely as possible. Rukmini, seated by the side of Krishna, saw arrows raining from the opposing party onto the faces of the Yadu soldiers. In a fearful attitude, she looked upon Krishna's face, expressing her gratefulness that he had taken such a great risk for her sake only. Her eyes moving, she appealed, appeared sorry, and Krishna, who could immediately understand her mind, encouraged her with these words. My dear Rukmini, don't worry. Please rest assured that the soldiers of the Yainu dynasty will kill all the opposing soldiers without delay. As Krishna was speaking with Rukmini, the commanders of the Yadu dynasty soldiers headed by Lord Balaram, who was also known as Sankarsana, Gada, not tolerating the defiant attitude of the opposing soldiers, began to strike their horses, elephants, and chariots with arrows. As the fighting progressed, the princes and soldiers of the enemy began to fall from their horses, elephants, and chariots. Within a short time, millions of severed heads decorated with helmets and earrings, had fallen on the battlefield. Arms were piled upon arms, thighs upon thighs, and horses upon horses. Similarly, other animals such as camels, elephants, and asses, as well as infantry soldiers, all fell with severed heads. When the enemy, headed by Jarasandha, found that they were gradually being defeated by the soldiers of Krishna, they thought it unwise to risk losing their armies in the battle for the sake of Shishupal. <laughs> Shishupal himself should have fought to rescue Rukmini from the hands of Krishna, but when the soldiers saw that Shishupal was not competent to fight with Krishna, they decided not to lose their, their armies unnecessarily. Therefore, they ceased fighting and dispersed. <clears throat> Some of the princes, as a matter of etiquette, appeared before Shishupal. They saw that Shishupal was discouraged, like one who has lost his wife. His face appeared dried up, and he had lost all his energy. 
and all the luster of his body had disappeared. They addressed Shishupal thus, Our dear Shishupal, don't be discouraged in this way. You belong to the royal order and are the chief amongst the fighters. There is no question of distress or happiness for a person like you, because neither of these conditions is everlasting. Take courage. Don't be disappointed by this temporary reversal. After all, we are not the final actors. As puppets dance in the hands of a magician, we are all dancing by the will of the Supreme, and according to His plan alone, we suffer distress or enjoy happiness. We should therefore be equipoised in all circumstances. Although in the beginning the princes had been full of hope for success in their heroic action, after their defeat they, they could only try to encourage Shishupal with flattering words. Thus Shishupal, instead of marrying Rukmini, had to be satisfied with the flattering words of his friends. <laughs> and he returned home, disappointment. The kings who had come to assist him, also, disappoint, also disappointed, then returned to their respective kingdoms. The whole catastrophe of the defeat was due to the envious nature of Rukmini's elder brother, Rukmi. Having seen his sister forcibly taken away by Krishna after he had planned to marry her to Shishupal, Rukmi was frustrated. So after Shishupal, his friend and intended brother-in-law returned home, Rukmi, very much agitated, was determined to teach Krishna a lesson personally. He called for his own soldiers, a military forces, chariots and infantry, and equipped with this military strength, he began to follow Krishna to Dwarka. To show his prestige, Rukmi promised all the returning kings, you could not marry my sister, Rukmini, but I cannot allow Rukmini to be taken away by Krishna. I shall teach him a lesson. Now I am going to follow him. He, present, he presented himself as a big commander and vowed before all the princes, unless I kill Krishna in a fight, in the fight, and bring back my sister not return to my capital city, Kundina. I make this vow before you all, and you will see that I shall fulfill it. After thus vibrating all these boasting words, Rukmi immediately got in his chariot and told his driver to pursue Krishna. He said, I want to fight with him immediately. This coward boy has become of his tricky way of fighting with is, but today I shall teach him a good lesson. Because he had the impudence to kidnap my sister, I, with my sharp arrows, teach him very good lessons indeed. Thus this unintelligent man, Rukmi, ignorant of the extent of the strength of the personality of Godhead, voiced his impudent great stupidity, he soon stood before Krishna and repeatedly, stop for a minute and fight with me. After saying this, he 
arrows against Krishna's body. Damned Krishna as the most descendant of the Yadudim came to stand before him for a minute so that he could teach. You were carrying away my sister just like a crow, stealing Clara for use in a sacrifice. You were proud of your military strength, but you cannot fight according to regulated principles. You have stolen Now I shall relieve you of your false prestige. You can keep my sister in your possession only until I beat you to the ground for good. Lord Krishna, after hearing all these crazy words from Rukmi, immediately the string of Rukmi's bow, making him unable to use another arrow. Rukmi immediately took another five arrows at Krishna. Being attacked for the second time, severed Rukmi's third bow, and Krishna again string. Teach Rukmi's Krishna shot, shot six arrows at him, and then horses with four arrows, killing the chariot driver with another arrow, and chopping off the upper portion of Rukmi's chariot, including the flag, with the remaining three arrows. Rukmi, having run out of arrows, <laughs> took assistance from swords, shields, tridents, lances, and similar weapons used for fighting hand to hand. But Krishna immediately broke them all in the same way. Being repeatedly baffled in his attempts, Rukmi took his sword and ran swiftly toward Krishna, just as a fly proceeds toward a fire. But as soon as Rukmi reached Krishna, Krishna cut his weapon, weapon to pieces. This time, Krishna took out his sharp sword and was about to kill him immediately. But Rukmi's sister, Rukmini, understanding that this time Krishna would not excuse her brother, fell down at Krishna's lotus feet, and in a very grievous tone, trembling with great fear, began to plead with her husband. Rukmini first addressed Krishna as Yogeshwar. Yogeshwar means one who was possessed of inconceivable opulence and energy. Krishna possesses inconceivable opulence and energy, whereas Rukmini's brother had only limited military potency. Krishna is immeasurable, whereas her brother... Therefore, Rukmi was not comparable even to an insignificant insect before the unlimited power of Krishna. She also addressed Krishna as the god of the gods. There are many powerful demigods, such as Lord Brahma, Lord Shiva, Indra, Chandra, and Varuna. But Krishna is the lord of all these gods, whereas Rukmini's brother was not only an ordinary human being, but in fact the lowest of all, because he had no understanding of Krishna. In other words, a human being who has no conception of the actual position of Krishna is the lowest in human society. Then Rukmini addressed Krishna as Mahabuja, which means one with unlimited strength. 
She also addressed Krishna as Jagatpati, the master of the whole cosmic manifestation. In comparison, her brother was only, only, only an ordinary prince. In this way, Rukmini compared the position of Rukmi with that of Krishna and very feelingly pleaded with her husband not to kill her brother just at the auspicious time of her being united with Krishna, but to excuse him. In other words, she displayed the, her real position as a woman. She was happy to get Krishna as her husband at the moment when her marriage was to another was to be performed, but she did not want to be it. She, but she did not want it to be at the loss of her elder brother, who, after all, loved his young sister and wanted his, to hand her over to one who, according to his calculations, was a better man. While Rukmini was praying to Krishna for the life of her brother, her whole body trembled, and because of her anxiety, her face appeared to dry up and her throat became choked. And due to her trembling, the ornaments of her body loosened and fell scattered on the ground. In this manner, when Rukmini was very much perturbed, she fell down on the ground, and Lord Krishna immediately became compassionate and agreed not to kill the foolish Rukmi. But at the same time, he wanted to give him some light punishment, so he tied him up with a piece of cloth and snipped at his mustache, beard, and hair, keeping some spots here and there. <laughs> While Krishna was dealing with Rukmi in this way, the soldiers of the Yadu dynasty, commanded by Balaram himself, <clears throat> broke the whole strength of Rukmi's army just as an elephant in a pond discards the feeble stem of a lotus flower. In other words, as an elephant breaks the whole construction of a lotus flower while bathing in a reservoir of water, the military strength of the Yadus broke up Rukmi's forces. When the commanders of the Yadu dynasty came back to see Krishna, they were all surprised to see the condition of Rukmi. Lord Balaram became especially compassionate toward his sister-in-law, who was near, newly married to his brother. To please Rukmini, Balaram personally un untied Rukmi, and to further please her, Balaram, as the elder brother of Krishna, spoke some words of chastisement. Krishna, your action is not at all satisfactory, he said. This is an abomination very much contrary to our family tradition. To cut someone's hair and shave his mustache and beard is almost comparable to killing him. Whatever Rukmi might have been, he is now our brother-in-law, a relative of our family, and you should not put him in such a condition. After this, to pacify Rukmini, Lord Balaram said to her, You should not be sorry that your brother has been made odd-looking. Everyone suffers or enjoys the results of his own actions. Lord Balaram wanted to impress upon Rukmini that she should not be sorry for the consequences her brother suffered due to his actions. There was no need of being too affectionate towards such a brother. Lord Balaram again turned toward Krishna and said, My dear Krishna, a relative, even though he commits such a blunder and deserves to be killed, should be excused. For when such a relative is conscious of his own fault, that consciousness itself is like death. Therefore, there is no need to kill him. And that ends our morning reading of Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. We're continuing 
with Krishna, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. We're partway through chapter 54. Krishna defeats all the princes and takes Rukmini home to Dwarka. Balaram again turned toward Rukmini and informed her that the current duty of the Kshatriya in human society is so fixed that according to the principles of fighting, one's own brother may become an enemy. Then a Kshatriya does not hesitate to kill his own brother. In other words, Lord Balaram wanted to instruct Rukmini that Rukmi and Krishna were right in not showing mercy to each other in the fighting, despite the family consideration that they happened to be brothers-in-law. Sri Balaram informed Rukmini that Kshatriyas are typical emblems of the materialistic way of life. They become puffed up whenever there is a question of material acquisition. Therefore, when there is a fight between two belligerent Kshatriyas for kingdom, land, wealth, women, prestige, or power, they try to put one another into the most abominable condition. Balaram instructed Rukmini that her affection toward her brother, Rukmi, who had created enmity with so many persons, was a perverse consideration befitting an ordinary materialist. Her brother's character was not at all admirable, considering his treatment of his friends, and yet Rukmini, like an ordinary woman, was affectionate toward him. He was not fit to be her brother, and still Rukmini was lenient toward him. Besides that, Balaram continued, the consideration that a person is neutral or as one's friend or enemy is generally made by persons in the bodily concept of life. Such foolish persons are bewildered by the illusory energy of the Supreme Lord. The spirit soul is of the same pure quality in any embodiment of matter. But those who are not sufficiently intelligent see only the bodily differences between animals and men, literates and illiterates, rich and poor, which cover the spirit soul. Such differences observed merely on the basis of the body are exactly like the differences between fires in terms of the various types of fuel they consume. Whatever the size and shape of the fuel, there is no such variety of size and shape in the fire which comes out. Similarly, in the sky, there are no differences in size and shape or shape. In this way, Balaram reconciled the situation by his moral and ethical instructions to Rukmini and Krishna. Through Rukmini, he stated further, this body is part of the material manifestation, consisting of the material elements, living conditions, and interactions of the modes of material nature. The living entity or spirit soul being in contact with these is transmigrating from one body to another due to illusory enjoyment. And that transmigration is known as material existence. This contact of the living entity with the material manifestation has neither integration nor disintegration. My dear chaste sister-in-law, the spirit soul is, of course, the cause of this material body, just as the sun is the cause of sunlight, eyesight, and the forms of material manifestation. The example of the sunshine and the material manifestation is very appropriate in understanding the living entity's contact with the material world. In the morning, the sun rises, and the heat and light gradually expand throughout the whole day. The sun is the cause of all material shapes and forms, for it is due to the sun that integration and disintegration of material elements take place. But as soon as the sun sets, the whole manifestation is no longer connected to the sun, which has passed from one place to another. When the sun passes from the eastern to the western hemisphere, 
the results of the interactions due to the sunshine in the eastern hemisphere remain, but the sunshine itself is visible in the western hemisphere. Similarly, the living entity accepts or produces different bodies and different bodily relationships in a particular circumstance. But as soon as he gives up the present body and accepts another, he has nothing to do with the former body. Similarly, the living entity has nothing to do with the next body he accepts. He is always free from the contact of this bodily contamination. Therefore, continued Balaram, the appearance and disappearance of the body have nothing to do with the living entity, just as the waxing and waning of the moon have nothing to do with the moon. When the moon waxes, we falsely think that the moon is developing, and when it wanes, we think the moon is decreasing. Factually, the moon, as it is, is always the same. It has nothing to do with such visible activities of waxing and waning. Lord Balaram continued, One's consciousness in material existence can be compared to sleeping and dreaming. When a man sleeps, he dreams of many non-factual happenings, and as a result of dreaming, he becomes subject to different kinds of distress and happiness. Similarly, when a person is in the dream of material consciousness, he suffers the effects of accepting a body and giving it up again in material existence. Opposite to this material consciousness is Krishna consciousness. In other words, when a man is elevated to the platform of Krishna consciousness, he becomes free from this false conception of life. In this way, Sri Balaram instructed Rukmini in spiritual knowledge. He further addressed his sister-in-law thus, Sweet, smiling Rukmini, do not be aggrieved by false notions caused by ignorance. Only because of false notions does one become unhappy. But one can immediately remove this unhappiness by discussing the philosophy of actual life. Be happy on that platform only. Be happy on that platform only. After hearing such enlightening instructions from Sri Balaram, Rukmini immediately became pacified and happy and adjusted her mind, which was very much afflicted by the degraded position of her brother Rukmi. As far as Rukmi was concerned, his promise was not fulfilled, nor was his mission successful. He had come from home with his soldiers and military phalanx to defeat Krishna and release his sister. But on the contrary, he lost all his soldiers and military strength. He was personally degraded and very sorry. But, because, but by the grace of the Lord, he could continue his life to its fixed destination. Because he was a Kshatriya, he could remember his promise that he would not return to his capital city, Kundina, without killing Krishna and releasing his sister, which he had failed to do. Therefore, he decided in anger not to return to his capital city, and he constructed a small cottage in the village known as Bojakata, where he resided for the rest of his life. <clears throat> after, after defeating all the opposing elements and forcibly carrying away Rukmini, Krishna brought her to his capital city, Dwarka, and then married her according to the Vedic ritualistic principles. After this marriage, Krishna became the king of the Yadus at Dwarka. On the occasion of his marriage with Rukmini, all the inhabitants were happy, and in every house 
there were great ceremonies. The inhabitants of Dwarka city were so much pleased that they dressed themselves with the nicest possible ornaments and garments and went to present gifts according to their means to the newly married couple, Krishna and Rukmini. All the houses of Yadupuri, Dwarka, were decorated with flags, festoons, and flowers. Each and every house had an extra gate specifically prepared for this occasion, and on both sides of the gate were big water jugs filled with water. The whole city was made fragrant by the burning of fine incense, and at night there was illumination from thousands of lamps which decorated every building. <clears throat> the entire city appeared jubilant on the occasion of Lord Krishna's marriage with Rukmini. Everywhere in the city, there were profuse decorations of banana trees and betel nut trees. These two trees are considered very auspicious in happy ceremonies. At the same time, there was an assembly of many elephants who carried the respective kings of different friendly kingdoms. It is the habit of the elephant that whatever, whenever he sees some small plants and trees, out of his sportive and frivolous nature, he uproots the trees and throws them hither and thither. The elephants assembled on this occasion also scattered the banana and betel nut trees, but in spite of such intoxicated action, the whole city, with the trees thrown here and there, looked very nice. The friendly kings of the Kurus and the Pandavas were represented by Bhishma, Dhritarashtra, the five Pandava brothers, King Drupada, King Santardana, and Rukmini's father, Bhishmaka. Because of Krishna's kidnapping Rukmini, there was initially some misunderstanding between the two families, but Bhishmaka, King of Vidarbha, being approached by Sri Balaram and persuaded by many saintly persons, was induced to participate in the marriage ceremony of Krishna and Rukmini. Although the incident of the kidnapping was not a very happy occurrence in the king, kingdom of, the, of Vidarbha, kidnapping was not an unusual affair among Chetriyas. Kidnapping was, in fact, current in almost all their marriages. Anyway, King Bhishmaka was from the very beginning inclined to hand over his beautiful daughter to Krishna. In one way or another, his purpose had been served, and so he was pleased to join the marriage ceremony, even though his eldest son was degraded in the fight. It is mentioned in the Padma Purana that Maharaj Nanda and the cowherd boys of Vrindavan joined the marriage ceremony. Kings from the kingdoms of Kuru, Srinjaya, Kekaya, Vidarbha, and Kunti all came to Dwarka on this occasion and met with one, and met with one another very joyfully. The story of Rukmini's being kidnapped by Krishna was poeticized and professional readers recited it everywhere. All the assembled kings and their daughters especially were struck with wonder and very much pleased upon hearing the chivalrous activities of Krishna. In this way, all the visitors, as well as the inhabitants of Dwarka city, were joyful to see Krishna and Rukmini together. 
In other words, the goddess of fortune was now united with the Supreme Lord, the maintainer of everyone, and thus all the people felt extremely jubilant. Thus end the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 54th chapter of Krishna. Krishna defeats all the princes and takes Rukmini home to Dwarka. Haribo! <laughs> chapter 55. <clears throat> Prajumna born to Krishna and Rukmini. It is said that Cupid, who was directly part and parcel of Lord Vasudev, and who was formerly burned to ashes by the anger of Lord Shiva, took birth from the womb of Rukmini, begotten by Krishna. This is, this is Kamadev, <clears throat> a demigod of the heavenly planets, especially capable of inducing lusty desires. The Supreme Personality of Godhead Krishna has many grades of parts and parcels, but the quadruple expansions of Krishna, Vasudev, Sankrishan, Prajumna, and Aniruddha, are directly in the Vishnu category. Kama, or the Cupid demigod, who later took birth from the womb of Rokmini, was also named Prajumna, but he cannot be the Prajumna of the Vishnu category. He belongs to the category of Jivatattva. But for exhibiting special power in the category of demigods, he was a part and parcel of the super prowess of Prajumna. That is the verdict of the Goswamis. Therefore, when Cupid was burned to ashes by the anger of Lord Shiva, he merged into the body of Vasudev. And to get his body again, he was begotten in the womb of Rukmini by Lord Krishna himself. Thus he was born as the son of Krishna and celebrated by the name Prajumna. Because he was begotten by Lord Krishna directly, his qualities were almost was, were most similar to those of Krishna. There was a demon of the name Shambhara who was destined to be killed by Prajumna. The Shambhara demon knew of his destiny and as soon as he learned that Prajumna had been born, he took the shape of a woman and kidnapped the baby from the maternity home less than 10 days after his birth. The demon took him and threw him directly into the sea. But as it is said, whoever is protected by Krishna, no one can kill, and whoever is destined to be killed by Krishna, no one can protect. When Prajumna was thrown into the sea, a big fish immediately swallowed him. Later, this fish was caught in the net of a fisherman, and the fish was later sold to the Shambhara demon. In the kitchen of the demon was a maidservant whose name was Mayavati. This woman had formerly been the wife of Cupid, called Rati. When the fish was presented to the demon Shambhara, it was taken charge of by his cook, who was to make it into a palatable fish preparation. <laughs> Demons and Rakshasas, like Ravana, Kangsa, and Hiranyakashipu, although born of Brahmana and Chatriya fathers, 
used to take meat and fish without discrimination. This practice is still prevalent in India, and those who eat meat and fish are generally called demons and rakshasas. When the cook was cutting the fish, he found within its stomach a nice baby, which he immediately presented into the charge of Mayavati, who was an assistant in the kitchen affairs. This woman was surprised to see how such a nice baby could remain within the belly of a fish, and the situation perplexed her. The great sage Narada then appeared and explained to her about the birth of Prajumna and how the baby had been taken away by Shambhara and later thrown into the sea. In this way, the whole story was disclosed to Mayavati. Mayavati knew that she had previously been Rati, the wife of Cupid. After her husband was burned to ashes by the wrath of Lord Shiva, she was always expecting him to come back in a material form. This woman was engaged for cooking rice and dal in the kitchen, but when she got this nice baby and understood that he was Cupid, her own husband, she naturally took charge of him and with great affection began to bathe him regularly. Miraculously, the baby swiftly grew up, and within a very short period, he became a beautiful young man. His eyes were just like the petals of a lotus flower, and his arms were long, reaching down to his knees. Any woman who happened to see him was captivated by his bodily beauty. Mayavati could understand that her former husband, Cupid, born as Pradyumna, had grown into such a nice young man, and she also gradually became captivated and lusty. Smiling before him with a feminine attractiveness, she expressed her desire for sexual union. He therefore inquired from him, How is it possible that first you were affectionate like a mother, and now you are expressing the symptoms of a lusty woman? What is the reason for such a change? <clears throat> On hearing the statement from Padumna, the woman, Rati, replied, My dear sir, you were the son of Lord Krishna. Before you were ten days old, you were stolen by the Shambhara demon, and later thrown into the water and swallowed by a fish. In this way you have come under my care, but actually in your former life as Cupid, I was your wife. Therefore my manifestation of conjugal symptoms is not at all incompatible. Shambhara wanted to kill you, and he is endowed with various mystic powers. Therefore, before he again attempts to kill you, please kill him as soon as possible with your divine power. Since you were stolen by Shambhara, your mother, Rukmini Devi, has been in a very grievous condition, like a Karari bird who has lost her babies. She is very affectionate toward you, and since you have been taken away by her, taken away from her, she has been living like a cow aggrieved over the loss of its calf. Mayavati had mystic knowledge of supernatural powers. Supernatural powers are generally known as Maya, and to surpass all such powers, there is another supernatural power called Mahamaya. Mayavati had the knowledge of the mystic power of Mahamaya, and she delivered to Pradumna this specific energetic power in order to defeat the mystic powers of the Shambhara demon. Thus being empowered by his wife, Pradumna immediately went before Shambhara and challenged him to a fight. Pradumna addressed him in very strong language so that his temper would be agitated and he would be moved to fight. 
At Prajumna's words, the demon Shambhara, being insulted, felt just like a snake feels after being struck by someone's foot. A serpent cannot tolerate being kicked by another animal or by a man, and it immediately bites its opponent. Shambhara felt the words of Prajumna as if they were a kick. He immediately took his club in his hand and appeared before Prajumna to fight. Roaring like a thundering cloud, in great anger the demon began to beat Prajumna with his club, just as a thunderbolt beats a mountain. Prajuna protected himself with his own club and eventually struck the demon very severely. In this way, the fighting between Shambhara-sura and Prajuna began in earnest. But Shambhara-sura knew the art of mystic powers and could raise himself into the sky and fight from outer space. There is a demon of the name Maya, and Shambhara-sura had learned many mystic powers from him. He thus raised himself high into the sky and threw various types of nuclear weapons at the body of Pradumna. To combat the mystic powers of Shambharasura, Pradumna invoked another mystic power known as Mahavidya, which was different from the black mystic power. The Mahavidya mystic power is based on the quality of goodness. Shambhara, understanding that his enemy was formidable, took assistance from various kinds of demoniac mystic powers belonging to the Kuhyakas, to the Kandarvas and the Pishachas, the snakes and the Rakshasas. But although the demon exhibited his mystic powers and took shelter of supernatural strength, Pradyumna was able to counteract his strength and powers by the superior power of Mahavidya. When Shambharasura was defeated in every respect, Pradyumna took his sharp sword and immediately cut off the demon's head which was decorated with a helmet and valuable jewels. When Pradyumna thus killed the demon, all the demigods in the higher planetary systems showered flowers on him. Pradyumna's wife, Mayavati, could travel in outer space and therefore... What? Pradyumna's wife, Mayavati, could travel in outer space and therefore they directly reached his father's capital, Dwarka, by the airways. They passed above the palace of Lord Krishna and came down as a cloud comes down with lightning. The intersection of a palace is known as the Antapura, private apartments. Pradumna and Mayavati could see many women there and they sat down among them. When the women saw Pradumna dressed in yellowish garments with very long arms, curling hair, beautiful reddish eyes, a smiling face, jewelry and ornaments, they at first could not recognize him as a personality different from Krishna. They all felt very bashful at the sudden presence of Krishna and wanted to hide in a different corner of the palace. When the women saw, however, that not all the characteristics of Lord Krishna were present in the personality of Pradumna, out of curiosity they came back to see him and his wife, Mayavati. All of them were conjecturing as to who he was, for he was so beautiful. Among the women was Rukmini Devi, who was equally beautiful with her lotus-like eyes. Seeing Pradumna, she naturally remembered her own son, and milk began to flow from her breasts out of motherly affection. She then began to wonder, Who is this beautiful young boy? He appears to be the most beautiful person. Who is the fortunate young woman able to conceive this nice boy in her, in her womb and become his mother? And who is that young man who has accompanied him? How have they met? <laughs> Excuse me. And who is that young woman who has accompanied him? 
How have they met? Remembering my own son, who was stolen from the maternity home, I can only guess that if he is living somewhere, he might have grown by this time to be like this boy. Simply by intuition, Rukmini could understand that Pradumna was her own lost son. She could also observe that Pradumna resembled Lord Krishna in every respect. She was struck with wonder as to how he had acquired all the characteristics of Lord Krishna. She therefore began to think more confidently that the boy must be her own grown-up son because she felt so much affection for him. And, as an auspicious sign, her left arm was trembling. At that very moment, Lord Krishna, along with his father and mother, Devaki and Vasudev, appeared on the scene. Krishna, the Supreme Personality of God, could understand everything. Yet in that situation, he remained silent. However, by the desire of Lord Sri Krishna, the great sage Narada also appeared, and he disclosed all the incidents, how Pradyumna had been stolen from the maternity home, and how he had grown up and had come there with his wife, Mayavati, who had formerly been Rati, the wife of Cupid. When everyone was informed of the mysterious appearance of Pradyumna, and oh, the mysterious disappearance, when everyone was informed of the mysterious disappearance of Pradyumna and how he had grown up, they were all struck with wonder, because they had gotten back their dead son after they were almost hopeless of his return. When they understood that it was Pradyumna who was present, they received him with great delight. One after another, all the members of the family, Devaki, Vasudev, Lord Sri Krishna, Lord Balaram, Rukmini, and all the women of the family embraced Pradyumna and his wife, Mayavati. When the news of Pradyumna's return spread all over the city of Dwarka, all the astonished citizens came with great eagerness to see the lost Pradyumna. The dead son has come back, they said. What can be more pleasing than this? Srila Sugadev Goswami Srila <clears throat> Sugadev Goswami has explained that in the beginning, all the ladies of the palace, who were all mothers and stepmothers of Prajumna, mistook him to be Krishna and were all bashful, infected by the desire for conjugal love. The explanation is that Prajumna's personal appearance was exactly like Krishna's, and he was factually Cupid himself. There was no cause for astonishment, therefore, when the mothers of Prajumna and the other women mistook him in that way. It is clear from this statement that Prajumna's bodily characteristics were so similar to Krishna's that he was mistaken for Krishna, even by his mother. <clears throat> Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 55th chapter of Krishna, Prajumna, born to Krishna and Rukmini. Chapter 56, the story of the Syamantaka jewel, one of my favorites. <clears throat> there was a king of the name Satrajit within the jurisdiction of Dwarkadam. He was a great devotee of the sun god who awarded him the benediction of a jewel known as Syamantaka. Because of this Syamantaka jewel, there was a misunderstanding between King Satyajit and the Yadu dynasty. Later, 
the matter was settled when Satyajit voluntarily offered Krishna his daughter, Satyabhama, along with the Samantaka jewel. Not only Satyabhama, but also Jambavati, the daughter of Jambavan, was married to Krishna on account of the Samantaka jewel. These two marriages took place before the, before the appearance of Prajumna, which was described in the last chapter. How King Satrajit offended the Yadu dynasty and how he later came to his senses and offered his daughter in the Samantaka jewel to Krishna are described as follows. <clears throat> Since he was a great devotee of the sun god, King Satrajit gradually entered into a very friendly relationship with him. The sun god was pleased with him and delivered to him an exceptional jewel known as Syamantaka. When Satrajit wore this jewel in a locket around his neck, he appeared exactly like an imitation sun god. Putting on this jewel, he entered the city of Dwarka, and people thought that the sun god had come into the city to see Krishna. <clears throat> they knew that Krishna, being the Supreme Personality of Godhead, was sometimes visited by the demigods. So while Satrajit was visiting the city of Dwarka, all the inhabitants except Krishna took him to be the sun god himself. <clears throat> Although King Satrajit was known to everyone, he could not be recognized because of the dazzling effulgence of the Samantaka jewel. Mistaking Satrajit to be the sun god, some of the important citizens of Dwarka immediately went to Krishna to inform him that the sun god had arrived to see him. At that time, Krishna was playing chess. One of the important residents of Dwarka spoke thus, My dear Lord Narayana, you are the Supreme Personality of Godhead. In your plenary portion as Narayana, or Vishnu, you have four hands with different symbols, the conchil, disc, club, and lotus flower. You were actually the owner of everything, but in spite of your being the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Narayana, you descended to Brind in Vrindavan to act as the child of Yashoda Mata, who sometimes used to tie you up with her ropes. And you were celebrated, therefore, by the name Damodar. That Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Narayana, as accepted by the citizens of Dwarka, was later confirmed by the great Mayavadi philosophical leader, Shankaracharya. By accepting the Lord as impersonal, he did not reject the Lord's personal form. Everything which has form in this material world is subject to creation, maintenance, and annihilation. But because the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Narayana, does not have a material form subject to these limitations, Shankaracharya, to convince the less intelligent men who take Krishna to be an ordinary human being, said that God is impersonal. This impersonality means that he is not a person of this material condition. He is a transcendental personality without a material body. The citizens of Dwarka addressed Lord Krishna not only as Damodar, but also as Govinda, 
which indicates that Krishna is very affectionate to the cows and calves. And just to refer to their intimate connection with Krishna, they addressed him as Yadunandana, because he was born the son of Vasudev in the Yadu dynasty. The citizens of Dwarka concluded by addressing Krishna as the supreme master of the whole universe. They addressed Krishna in many different ways, proud of being citizens of Dwarka who could see Krishna daily. When Satyajit was visiting the city of Dwarka, the citizens felt great pride to think that although Krishna was living in Dwarka like an ordinary human being, the demigods were coming to see him. Thus they informed Lord Krishna that the sun god, with his glaring bodily effulgence, was coming to see him. The citizens of Dwarka confirmed that the sun god's coming into Dwarka was not very wonderful because people all over the universe who were searching after the Supreme Personality of Godhead knew that he had appeared in the Yadu dynasty and was living in Dwarka as one of the members of that family. Thus the citizens expressed their joy on this occasion. On hearing the statements of his citizens, the all-pervasive personality of Godhead, Krishna, simply smiled. Being pleased with the citizens of Dwarka, Krishna informed them that the person they described as the sun god was actually King Satrajit, who had come to visit Dwarka city to show his opulence in the form of the valuable, valuable jewel obtained from the sun god. Satrajit, however, did not come to see Krishna. He was instead overwhelmed by the Samantaka jewel. He installed the jewel in a temple to be worshipped by brahmanas he engaged for this purpose. This is an example of a less intelligent person worshipping a material thing. In the Bhagavad Gita it is said, in the Bhagavad Gita it is stated that less intelligent persons in order to get immediate results in the Bhagavad Gita, it is stated that less intelligent persons, in order to get immediate results from their fruitive activities, worship the demigods created within this universe. The word materialist means one concerned with gratification of the senses within this material world. Although Krishna later asked for this Syamataka jewel, King Satrajit did not deliver it. On the contrary, he installed the jewel for his own purposes of, of worship. And who would not worship that jewel? The Syamantaka jewel was so powerful that daily it produced a large quantity of gold. A quantity of gold is counted by a measurement called a bara. According to Vedic formulas, one bara is equal to about 20 pounds and one mound equals about 82 pounds. The jewel was producing about 170 pounds of gold every day. Besides that, it is learned from Vedic literature that in whatever part of the world this jewel was worshipped, there was no possibility of famine, and wherever the jewel was present, there was no possibility of anything inauspicious 
such as pestilence. Lord Krishna wanted to teach the world that the best of everything should be offered to the ruling chief of the country. King Ugrasena was the overlord of many dynasties and happened to be the grandfather of Krishna. So Krishna asked Sachajit to present the Shamataka jewel to King Ugrasena. Krishna pleaded that the best should be offered to the king. But Satrajit, being a worshiper of the demigods, had become too materialistic and, instead of accepting the request of Krishna, thought it wiser to worship the jewel to get the 170 pounds of gold every day. Materialistic persons who can achieve such huge quantities of gold are not interested in Krishna consciousness. Sometimes, therefore, to show special favor, Krishna takes away one's great accumulations of materialistic wealth and thus makes one a great devotee. But Satrajit refused to abide by the order of Krishna and did not deliver the jewel. After this incident, Satrajit's younger brother, in order to display the opulence of the family, took the jewel, put it on his neck, and rode on horseback into the forest, making a show of his material opulence. While Satrajit's brother, who is known as Prasena, was moving here and there in the forest, a big lion attacked him, killed both him and the horse on which he was riding, and took away the jewel to his cave. News of this was received by the gorilla king, Jambavan, who then killed that lion in the cave and took away the jewel. Jambavan had been a great devotee of the Lord since the time of Lord Ramachandra, so he did not take the valuable jewel as something he very much needed. He gave it to his young son to play with as a toy. In the city, when Satrajit's younger brother, Prasena, did not return from the forest with the jewel, Satrajit became very upset. He did not know that his brother had been killed by a lion and that the lion had been killed by Jambavan. He thought instead that because Krishna wanted that jewel, which had not been delivered to him, Krishna might have therefore taken the jewel from Prasena by force and killed him. This idea grew into a rumor which Satrajit spread in every part of Dwarka. The false rumor that Krishna had killed Prasena and taken away the jewel spread everywhere like wildfire. Krishna did not like to be defamed in that way and therefore he decided that he would go to the forest and find the Shamanchaka jewel taking with him some of the important inhabitants of Dwarka, Krishna went to search out Prasena, the brother of Satrajit, and found him dead, killed by the lion. At the same time, Krishna also found the lion killed by Jambavan, who is generally called Riksha. It was found that the lion had been killed by the hand of Riksha without the assistance of any weapon. Krishna and the citizens of Dwarka then found in the forest a great tunnel said to be the path to Riksha's house. Krishna knew that the inhabitants of Dwarka would be afraid to enter the tunnel. Therefore, he asked them to remain outside and he himself entered the tunnel, the dark tunnel 
alone to find Riksha, Jambavan. After entering the tunnel, Krishna saw that the valuable jewel known as Shamantaka had been given to the son of Riksha as a toy. To take the jewel from the child, Krishna approached and stood before him. When the nurse taking care of Riksha's child saw Krishna standing before her, she was afraid, thinking he might take away the valuable Shamantaka jewel, and she cried out loudly in fear. Hearing the nurse's cries, Jambavan appeared on the scene in a very angry mood. Jambavan was actually a great devotee of Lord Krishna, but because he was angry, he could not recognize his master and thought him to be an ordinary man. This brings to mind the statement of the Bhagavad Gita in which the Lord advises Arjuna to get free from anger, greed, and lust in order to rise to the spiritual platform. Lust, anger, and greed run parallel in the heart and check one's progress on the spiritual path. Not recognizing his master, Jambavan challenged him to fight. There was then a great fight between Krishna and Jambavan in which they fought like two opposing vultures. Whenever there is an edible corpse, an eatable corpse, the vultures fight heartily over the prey. Krishna and Jambavan first of all fought with weapons, then with stones, then with big trees, then hand to hand, until at last they were hitting each other with their fists, their blows like the striking of thunderbolts. Each expected victory over the other. But the fighting continued for 28 days, both in daytime and at night, without stopping. Although Jambavan was the strongest living entity of that time, practically all the joints of his bodily limbs became slackened and his strength was reduced practically to nil. For he was struck constantly by the fists of Sri Krishna. Feeling very tired with perspiration all over his body, Jambavan was astonished. Who was this opponent who was fighting so hard with him? Jambavan was quite aware of his own superhuman bodily strength, but when he felt tired from being struck by Krishna, he could understand that Krishna was no one else but his worshipable Lord, the Supreme Personality of Godhead. This incident has special significance for devotees. In the beginning, Jambavan could not understand Krishna because his vision was obscured by material attachment. He was attached to his boy and to the greatly valuable Shamataka jewel, which he did not want to spare for Krishna. In fact, when Krishna came there, he was angry, thinking that Krishna had come to take away the jewel. This is the material position. Although one is very strong in body, that cannot help him understand Krishna. In a sporting attitude, Krishna wanted to engage in a mock fight with his devotee. As we have experienced from the pages of Srimad Bhagavatam, the Supreme Personality of God has all the propensities and instincts of a human being. Sometimes in a sportive spirit, he wishes to fight to make a show of bodily strength. And when he so desires, he selects one of his suitable devotees to give him that pleasure. Krishna desired this pleasure of mock fighting with Jambavan. Although Jambavan was a devotee by nature, he did not know that his opponent was Krishna while giving service to the Lord by his bodily strength. But as soon as Krishna was pleased by the fighting, 
John Bavon immediately understood that his opponent was none other than the Supreme Lord himself. The conclusion is that he could understand Krishna by his service, for Krishna is sometimes satisfied by fighting also. Jambavan therefore said to the Lord, My dear Lord, I can now understand who you are. You are the Supreme Personality of Godhead, Lord Vishnu, the source of everyone's strength, wealth, reputation, beauty, wisdom, and rec renunciation. This statement of Jambavan's is confirmed by the Vedanta Sutra, wherein the Supreme Lord is declared to be the source of everything. Jambavan identified Lord Krishna as the Supreme Personality, Lord Vishnu. My dear Lord, you are the creator of the creators of the universal affairs. This statement is very instructive to the ordinary man who is amazed by the activities of a person with an exceptional brain. The ordinary man is surprised to see the innovation to see the innovations of a great scientist. The ordinary man is surprised to see the inventions of a great scientist. But the statement of Jambavan confirms that although a scientist may be a creator of many wonderful things. Krishna is the creator of the scientists. He is the creator of not only one scientist, but of millions and trillions all over the universe. Jambavan said further, not only are you the creator of the creators, but you are also the creator of the material elements which the so-called creators manipulate. Scientists utilize the physical elements or laws of material nature to do something very wonderful but actually such laws and elements are also the creation of Krishna. This is actual scientific understanding. Less intelligent men do not try to understand who created the brain of the scientists. They are satisfied simply to see the wonderful creation or invention of the scientist. <laughs> Jambavan continued, My dear Lord, the time factor which combi combines all the physical elements is also your representative. You are the supreme time factor in which all creation takes place. Really? Try it again. Jambavan continued, My dear Lord, the time factor which combines all the physical elements is also your representative. <clears throat> you are the supreme time factor in which all creation takes place, is maintained, and is finally annihilated. And beyond the physical elements and the time factor, the persons who manipulate the ingredients and advantages of creation are part and parcel of you. The living entity is not, therefore, an independent creator. By studying all factors in the right perspective, one can see that you are the supreme controller and lord of everything. My dear Lord, I can see, therefore, I can therefore understand that you are the same Supreme Personality of Godhead whom I worshipped as Lord Ramachandra. <clears throat> My Lord Ramachandra wanted to construct a bridge over the ocean. And I saw personally how the ocean became agitated simply by my Lord's 
glancing over it. And when the whole ocean became agitated, the living entities like whales, alligators, and timingila fish all became perturbed. The timingila fish in the ocean can swallow big aquatics like whales in one gulp. In this way, the ocean was forced to give way and allow Ramachandra to cross to the island known as Lanka. This island is now said to be Ceylon. Lord Ramachandra's construction of a bridge over the ocean from Cape Comorin to Ceylon is still well known to everyone. After the construction of the bridge, a fire was set all over the kingdom of Ravana. <clears throat> During the fighting with Ravana, every part of his limbs was slashed to pieces by your sharp arrows, and his heads fell to the face of the earth. Now I can understand that you are none other than my lord, Ramachandra. No one else has such immeasurable strength. No one else could defeat me in this way. Lord Krishna was satisfied by the prayers and statements of Jambavan, and to mitigate Jambavan's pain, he began to lightly rub the lotus palm of his hand all over Jambavan's body. Thus Jambavan at once felt relieved from the fatigue of the great fight. Lord Krishna then addressed him as King Jambavan, because he, and not the lion, was actually the king of the forest, having killed a lion with his bare hands, without a weapon. Krishna informed Jambavan that he had come to ask for the Samataka jewel, because ever since it had been stolen, his name had been defamed by the less intelligent. Krishna plainly informed him that he had come there to ask for the jewel in order to be free from this defamation. Jambavan understood the whole situation, and to satisfy the Lord, he immediately delivered not only the Samantaka jewel, but also his daughter, Jambavati. Jambavati, who was of marriageable age, and presented her to Lord Krishna. The episode of Jambavati's marriage with Lord Krishna and the delivery of the jewel known as Syamantaka was finished within the mountain cave. Although the fighting between Krishna and Jambavan went on for 28 days, the inhabitants of Dwarka waited outside the tunnel for 12 days. And after that, they decided that something undesirable must have happened. They could not understand for certain what had actually happened, and being very sorry and tired, they returned to the city of Dwarka. All the members of the family, namely Krishna's mother Devaki, his father Vasudev, and his chief wife Rukmini, along with other friends, along with all other friends, relatives and residents of the palace, were very sorry when the citizens returned home without Krishna. Because of their natural affection for Krishna, they began to call Satrajit ill names, for he was the cause of Krishna's disappearance. They went to worship the goddess Chandrabhaga, praying for the return of Krishna. 
The goddess was satisfied by the prayers of the citizens of Dwarka, and, and she immediately offered them her benediction. Simultaneously, Krishna appeared on the scene, accompanied by his new wife, Jambavati, and all the inhabitants of Dwarka and relatives of Krishna became joyful. The inhabitants of Dwarka were as joyful as someone receiving a dear relative back from the dead. They had concluded that Krishna had been put into great difficulties due to the fighting. Therefore, they had become almost hopeless of his return. But when they saw that Krishna had actually returned, not alone, but with a new wife, Jambavati, they immediately performed a ceremony of celebration. King Ugrasena then called for a meeting of all important kings and chiefs. He also invited Satrajit before the whole and before the whole assembly. Krishna explained this, the incident of the recover, recovery of the jewel from Jambavan. Krishna wanted to return the valuable jewel to King Satrajit. Satrajit, however, was ashamed because he had unnecessarily defamed Krishna. He accepted the jewel in his hand, but he remained silent, bending his head downwards, and without saying anything in the assembly of the kings and chiefs, he returned home with the jewel. Then he thought about how he could clear himself of the abominable act he had performed by defaming Krishna. He was conscious that he had offended Krishna very grievously and that he had to find a remedial measure so that Krishna would again be pleased with him. King Satrajit was eager to get relief from the anxiety he had foolishly created due to being attracted by a material thing, specifically the Samantaka jewel. Truly afflicted by the offense he had committed against Krishna, he sincerely wanted to rectify it. From within, Krishna gave him good intelligence and Satrajit decided to hand over to Krishna both the jewel and his beautiful daughter, Satyabhama. There was no alternative for mitigating the situation and therefore he arranged the marriage ceremony of Krishna and his daughter. He gave in charity both the jewel and his daughter to the Supreme Personality of Godhead. Satyabhama was so beautiful and qualified that Satyajit, in spite of being asked for her hand by many princes, was waiting to find a suitable son-in-law. By the grace of Krishna, he decided to hand his daughter over to him. Lord Krishna, being pleased with Satrajit, informed him that he did not have any need of the Samantaka jewel. It is better to let it remain in the temple as you have kept it, he said, and every one of us will derive benefit from the jewel. Because of the jewel's presence in the city of Dwarka, there will be no more famines or disturbances created by pestilence or excessive heat or cold. Thus ends the Bhaktivedanta purport of the 56th chapter 
of Krishna, the story of the Samantaka Jewel. Everyone clapped, except for Kamsa. <laughs> he wasn't too appreciative of that. Yes, Prabhu. I just wondered because in my uh, on my Kindle it said uh, that uh, uh, Jambavan was the king's. Yeah. But it's but uh, in your uh, yeah version it said king of the monkeys or gorillas. Yeah. Yeah, they're vanaras. Okay. Kind of like. Uh, Monkey-like creatures. Like Hanuman, or same. Vanaras, yeah. Okay. Prabhu, you were going to say something? Uh, I have a reflection and a question. Okay. But about... Uh, you got to use the mic. Yesterday. Counts without the microphone. Uh, about the Kupcha Leela from yesterday. Oh. Um, Vishwanath Chakravati Thakur states, The young hunchbacked girl, Kupcha, is actually a partial expansion of Satyabhama, mm -hmm. the wife of Krishna. Yeah. And uh, she represents. Oh, she she represents the the earth. Uh, and who was bent by the wicked rulers of Kamsa and others, and. Kupcha offered to him mm, the, the essence of the earth, which was fragrance. Oh. I mean, this is this is a statement of uh, Vishwanath. Hmm. And when when she was when Krishna put her straight, he, he said to her that uh, this is uh, he take the burden away from the earth so she can be straight again so she can be straight again and the question is yeah <laughs> thank you uh, the question is uh, this kupcha is it so that she was also in ramlila uh, Subarnaka, the sister of ravana is that what it says? Pardon? Is that what he says? Vishnath says that? No. There's I, I, I heard it, but that she was actually uh, Supanaka. From where did you hear it? That explained, I not remember, that explained these conjugal feelings to, uh, towards Ram. Okay, let me ask Kartik then. Someone in the assembly here has mentioned that he heard that Kubja was previously Supanaka. in Ram's Leela. Is it? You want to know if there's if that's true? Uh, that's my question. 
if that is so. Kartik Chandra. He's in Vrindavan now. He wants to come over. Kartik Chandra grew up speaking Sanskrit when he was a baby. He's, he's, you know, from a family from a different era. He lives and breathes Bhagavatam. I tell you some stuff he, he you know him? He's far out. I asked him questions over the last few days. Uh, I haven't relayed them all, but one of the questions was, oh wait, whenever you're ready. Okay. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama. Rama Rama, Hare Hare. Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama. Rama Rama Hare Hare Ready? Okay, remember I, you asked me to ask him. I asked him um, Sir Shastra to show the Nityasiddha gopis who joined Krishna's Bhomalila in a special category. That is, are they different from the gopis who became nityasiddha through sadhana by association with Krishna in this world? He gave me a number of uh, citations from Skanda Purana. says there were two types of leelas of the Lord, Vastavi in the spiritual world and Vyavaharika on earth. The participants in his leela are nitya, that is, those who are eternally with him but come down with him for Vyavaharika leelas, devadya, etc. And, um, that is, those who were taken by him to Dwarka and who were destroyed in the Mushala Parva and Talipsu. That is, those who performed sada and perfected themselves to the Prema stage and thus eventually participated in his Vyavahari Kalilas and converted to Nitya platform at the end of his Vyavahari Kalilas. These three categories are further elaborated and described in Srila Rupa Goswami's Ujjala Nilamani Chapter 3, Sri Hari Priya Prakaranam. He gives extensive Sanskrit quotations about that and says Srila Jiva Goswami's commentary, Srila Vishnu Chakravarti Thakur's commentary, Srila Vamshidari's commentary, and Sripad Balabhacharya's commentary on Srimad Bhagavatam 10.29.9 is very instructive in regard in this regard. You may refer to the above mentioned references. Anyway, there's a lot of extra work to do there. But listen to this. I was asking him about the the because they gave a class in New York. Someone and it had to do with Balaram coming to Naimasharanya and was the had the war taken place or not during that time. He answers, you asked a question about Lord, <laughs> you asked a question about Lord Balaram's going on pilgrimage and Siddha Goswami's <laughs> narrating Srimad Bhagavatam. 
You asked a question about Lord Balaram. <laughs> you asked a question about Lord Balaram's going on pilgrimage and Sutta Goswami's narrating Srimad Bhagavatam to the sages and the time gap between that. I will attempt to answer it below. The simple answer is Lord Balaram went on pilgrimage in October 3137 BCE when the Mahabharat War took place because he did not wish to witness the war. The same year he killed Ramaharshan Sutta and then went for an additional year of pilgrimage as an atonement on the advice of the sages. 35 years later, Kali Yuga begins on 18th February 3102 BCE and Shonaka plus 88,000 sages start a 1,000 year yagya. 30 years after the beginning of Kali Yuga, Maharaj Prikshit is cursed in August 3072 BCE. This is when Shukadev Goswami narrates the Srimad Bhagavatam to him in Ugrashava Sutta Goswami hears it in the audience. And Ugrashava Sutta Goswami then narrates it to Shaunika plus 88,000 sages the same year. I have attached the detailed chronology in my email. And there is a, a detailed, that's the summary, the detailed chronology is there. I knew that. Why wouldn't I know that? Okay. Any other um, any other comments? Did we answer your question about Kumja? I, I wrote to Kartik to ask him. You never heard that. Heard what? No, but I mean, you know, there's all kinds of commentaries and things like that. But that's what you wanted to know, right? Yeah, we'll check on it. And also, you know, like, there's so many different commentaries you can read. Mukunda Dato Prabhu, you know, I, I remember when he gave a class at Sadhusanga in North Carolina, and someone had mentioned about the pastime of Bali Maharaj and how in the next life, um, who was it? Who was, um, yeah, she, the sister, I'm trying to remember, had, um, appreciated the beauty of Vamana, Dave, but then when he took away all of um, Bali Maharaja's property, then, you know, at first, Oh yeah, she became Putin in her next life, according to some Shastra. And that's a pervasive, you know, story that you hear in ISKCON. People will say, oh yeah, uh, Putana had been the sister of Bali Maharaj, and that he had mixed emotions and therefore came as Putana. But then he said, you know, I've researched it, I haven't found anywhere. Um, authoritative that says that Mukunda Dato and he just issued a warning to be careful about picking up fragments here there and everywhere <clears throat> that you can't trace back and verify exactly because um, it sounds good and one can definitely get an inside edge you know if you know more than somebody else because you heard a past you know a, a fragment somewhere 
But like Gopi Paranadhan, he was always really careful. If he didn't know something, he'd always say, I don't know. Or <clears throat> if he had some place to back it up, he would make sure he nailed it down. I realize that's what you're doing now. But, the, but I just, following Gopi's and Mukunda Dutto's conservatism about just hearing something and then passing it on, I think it's a good... Uh, yeah, one comes from Gopi, Parananda Prabhu, and he tells the, uh, he answers a question at the beginning of the Sanskrit school to a student, a new student, who asked this kind of question about this and that details, very kind of obscure details that no one else would know about and this and that. And Gopi said two things. He said, first of all, Rupa Goswami warns us not to read too many scriptures. This does not mean that we should not become thoroughly learned, but it means not to become dilettante. Dilettante means a person who picks up, as, as Vaishnavas Prabhu was saying, a little from this scripture, a little from that scripture, a little from this scripture, and a little from that scripture, in order to become seen to be a learned person. Rupa Goswami uh, warns against that. That's right in the Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Then he also kind of made up, a, not made up, but he suggested that what if Pandora's box hadn't been opened in ISKCON? In other words, when the devotees first started translating things without commentary and so many things, or went out and got so many different details from so many places, what happens if that hadn't happened and we only had Prabhupada's books? And his suggestion was we would be less confused. His suggestion was that his suggestion was that we would become less confused, we, there would be less confusion, and that we would all still go back to Godhead. Because Srila Prabhupada's books have enough nectar in them to take us back to Godhead. Yeah, I was, I was thinking the other day during the Gayatri break. I was thinking during Gayatri break how um, the last time I read Krishna book all the way through, from beginning to end, was uh, a few years ago in this room, and that you know I've been busy reading Bhagavatam and other books, Prabhupada books, and then when do you actually come to the end of it? And I mean, if you really leaned into it, um, you know, could you actually fathom Prabhupada's book? So there is a morning walk, and there was this controversy going on in India because when the devotees started assembling in India, they found a plethora of books they could uh, read from, from other um, acharyas that had been translated to some degree. And they were reading them. And then the temple president or whoever was in charge there, I think it was a Chutananda, said, no, you can't read these. Prabhupada said, don't read them. So there was a big controversy going on among the devotees. So when Prabhupada went on his morning walk and was visiting there and going on his morning walk, they asked him, Prabhupada, um, 
there's this controversy. Some of the devotees say that uh, we can't keep these books or read them from the other acharyas. And Prabhupada said, they, they said, you had said, Prabhupada, it can't do that. And Prabhupada said, they said, I have said, I have not said. I said, you should read the books of the previous acharyas. But then he said, but my point is that you should assimilate what you already have first. He said, in other words, I've, he said, I've worked so hard to present all these books, but if, have you actually assimilated what you have now? Instead of collecting more and more, then try to become well-versed in what's already there. So it's sort of both. I mean, yes, Prabhu. Uh, way back when we had, Prabhupada said, now we have four books. That is sufficient to read those books for the next hundred years. <laughs> I mean, that's a pretty bold statement right there, because now we got all Prabhupada's books, and I don't know hardly anybody that's read them all, or read them all enough to say, look, I'm going to go out and start reading, you know, anything else. I mean... Another point I heard Gopi discuss... <clears throat> When we were working together in the for the Riya Bhagavatamrita, <clears throat> he said that uh, it isn't always a good idea to take the bits and pieces of Radha and Krishna's pastimes from different Puranas and put them together. He said they're not really meant to be put together like that in one stream, because sometimes they come from different times different even creations sometimes and sometimes they may be from a purana that maybe is tinged with a different mode of nature because the bhagavatam is shuddha sattva it's pure it's an eternal scripture according to jiva goswami and therefore there's no question of any modes of nature being in the Srimad bhagavatam but you know there's 18 major puranas and they're tinged with goodness and passion and ignorance, six of each. And therefore, it's not actually recommended to try to put it all together into one flow. Uh, it may, it may uh, Gopi Prandana told me that it may sometimes lend itself to uh, rasabhas or, or incompatibility, you know? Therefore, he was very, very strong on this point that we just stick to the Bhagavatam. Try to assimilate the whole Bhagavatam in one lifetime. Of course, then he was running the Sanskrit school, and their main purpose was to translate new literatures. The main so, purpose was to be, to be Bhagavad. Yeah, but one of the purposes of the, of the, whole, of the exercise was that the Sandarbha, and there's still that push by the BBT to come out with Sandarbhas, and any of the other books that Prabhupada mentioned that he wanted to come out. So there has to be some balance. And the point I made earlier about assimilation, I think is helpful because we should really try to assimilate what we already have, but it doesn't mean we should be unaware of the canon of you know, other literatures and that we couldn't cross-reference them. But I think it's also important to wait until they're, they're reliable translations that have been edited properly because nowadays people can go to the um, Rasa Bihari Lal's 
which I heard is way down. The sales are way down now. I think because of digital and things like that. And, oh, I know who was telling me. He says there's not many Europeans going there and Russians don't buy as many books or something. I forget. It's just a different demographic. But in any case, you can't always trust what's there because they just put together anything and try to make it look okay. I'd, I'd like to uh, confirm what 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 uh, Prabhu just said, as having come directly from uh, Gopi Puranadana Prabhu, because he gave me a list per personally of a hundred titles that he thought that the BBT should translate. But but your point about the translation should be proper is actually the the qualifying uh, issue from what I was saying. Not not that I'm saying that we shouldn't, you know, uh, research and this and that. It's just that there's a way that Krishna's pastimes, if you try to put them together as a like a jigsaw puzzle from different 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 yeah, parameters, and sometimes it doesn't quite fit. Sometimes it does, but it's definitely a fact that Prabhupada wanted the BBT to continue to, to uh, and this is also coming from Gopi who and Jai Dwight Marsh, who I was working with. He definitely wanted the BBT to continue to be the uh, the, the greatest or largest or whatever uh, publisher of, of the literatures, the Sanskrit literatures. And uh, when the Nectar Devotion came out, Prabhupada famously said, read the book, don't ask me, Prabhupada, what's this, what's this? Read it once, twice, thrice, and then you will, you'll get it. So, you know, somebody says, I already read Prabhupada's books, I'm going to go read every, you know. And I don't know anybody that didn't once, know. Once, twice, thrice. Yeah. And then, what was We tried to read the Nectar Devotion in one day once <laughs> in Denver. Me, Kashiram and me. We stayed back and we started early in the morning and we, and we passed the book back and forth. Okay, well, this is the last point we got from our Injanuja Prabhu. No, I just wonder if uh, both of you could comment. A lot of people are running off to the midnight bathing in Radhakund. What, what's, what's uh, our... It, what's the praman and what's our what is our mood about this? You can go to Radhakund. No harm. Uh, that's you go to Radhakund and you'll at, at midnight and you'll be in ecstasy because you pick up the the enthusiasm of all the people down there going take around and it's Radhakund. So it's a really ecstatic thing to do if you like to stay up at midnight. There's another. Bhava, which is staying regulated and continuing to hear the Krishna book. Or you can be in another mode, which is, you know, more on parikram and, you know, pushing yourself physically out there on the marg, which we used to do, and then going down to the midnight um, soiree. But the, that's, it's got its own benefits. What? Is it from Nectar of Instruction? Nectar or? of Instruction says, Sakrideva Sarasnatora Vishkaroti. If you bathe once in the Radha then you'll attain perfection. And Rupa Goswami says, 
as long as you're in this world, you should try to bathe as many times as you can in Radhakund. But uh, I was discussing with uh, Giri Prabhu. He was saying that the apricot, not, not, if you're not actually bathing in Radhakund. That doesn't mean don't go to Radhakund. Properly bathe in Radhakund, you should take the verses before that last two verses and assimilate them into your character. And then you can bathe in Radhakund. Actually, I mean, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that you can bathe in Radhakund and anybody can bathe in Radhakund and they get great benefit. But to get the full benefit, you know, uh, you have to be qualified. And not everyone is. Therefore, Srila Prabhupada wants when the, one of the first times they went there with the devotees, they would play and, you know, jump from we the side. We all jumped in. I know. And <laughs> Prabhupada. And, and then he yeah. told us, because we were immature, he said, don't do that. Yeah, he said it's, it's, it's sufficient to put the drops of water on the Radhakund on your head. And he said that is non-different from bathing in Radhakund. So it's an individual thing. You can when you start, what's our praman? You know, like, you know, what are we supposed to do or not do? It's like, it's not like that. Each individual person has their, you know, their guidelines. The Prabhupada said, "Don't be frivolous. Don't just play around." That's Radharani. It's Radharani. You're going to go in with your feet. That means you better be very, very careful and in the right mood. You know, etc., etc., etc. And that brings us to the cow break. We'll be back here at 5.30. Hare Krishna. Gaur Premanande Haribo. Nachari Armarman. Nachari Armarman. Nachari Armarman. Nachari Armarman. Hey! Nachari Armarman. Nachari Armarman. Not to the arm, my man, not to the arm, my man.